0: Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes for the week ending September 25th, 2020. I'd like to welcome everybody. This is our 49th videocast and 39th podcast. So we're going to get right to it. We've got a ton to cover. And as always, uh, we're going to start with our media spots where we cover a lot of information in a short period of time. First, I'd like to thank Ellie Terrett and Liz Klayman for having me on yesterday on the claim and countdown on Fox Business. And the question posed to me, Liz asked, if there is no stimulus deal and consumer spending goes down, there was a note out by Goldman Sachs saying that they were taking down their Q4 estimates because they no longer expected stimulus, um, what stocks should you buy if the, if consumer spending is going to be weak? So what will they have to spend money on? And uh, what I pointed out was, and by the way, you can watch any of these clips. You just go to Hedgefundtips.com, click on this Featured On button on the top of the website. It'll come right up, and then there is a video you can watch uh, right there. You just click on that for the YouTube video uh, and get more detail. So the uh, part of this note was, yes, the... Q4 estimates would come down, but the second part was there will be a catch-up trade. So while they're expecting negative 3.5% GDP with no stimulus in 2020, which by the way is up dramatically from just a couple of months ago, you had the IMF, I think we were kind of poking fun at it a little bit in June saying uh, U.S. was going to be down 9% in 2020. Uh, so now we're at 35 but the rebound catch-up puts us at 6%, which we've been talking about for months now for 2021 based on the increase in money supply. Um, to answer Liz's question, we went into dividend growers. Uh, so consumers would still have to buy electricity. We like ConEd. ConEd Con Ed was down 21% off its recent high. It yields 4.17%. It's increased its dividend every single year for the last 46 years. They would have to buy drugs, so they'd pick them up at Walgreens Boots Alliance. Uh, That one's off 43% from its recent peak. It yields 5.3%, and they've increased their dividend every single year for 44 years. Uh, And then for medical supplies and devices, uh, you could be in Beckton Dickinson. Uh, That's off 22% from its recent highs. It yields 1.4%, and they've increased the dividend for 47 years. And then Soup and Snacks, Campbell's is down 17.5% off its recent high and yields 3.1%. Why is this important? This came up as a question from a reporter uh, earlier this week, which the article is not out yet, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But where do you find income in a uh, low rate environment? And we're going to talk about that a little bit in the article. So these... Stocks fit the bill, Con Ed, Walgreens, Becton Dickinson, Campbell's. These aren't recommendations, uh, See terms you know, you have to do your own homework, talk with your own financial advisor. Uh, But it's it's stocks that would uh, hold up in that type of environment. Now, we're going to talk about some things here and some breakthroughs that I see coming in terms of stimulus. And uh, for those who have been listening in, you know I've been pretty pessimistic about that for the last four weeks about them getting a deal done before the election and that's that's proved to be true to date but let's let's uh, I think the administration now has some leverage that may force force some hands to to get something done. And we'll talk about that. Uh, The other thing I covered with Liz was that the reopening trade is working in the month of September. That's another theme we've been pounding on for weeks. Uh, that um, and it really began in earnest in September with industrials materials, transports, and financials all outperformed tech so far this month uh, that 's new and um, and the market is really just looking to fill an information vacuum. It needs clarity, and that 's why we 've had the choppiness it needs clarity on the vaccine, which we 're going to talk about earnings coming up in just the next few weeks, the election and the stimulus, which we're going to talk about. So I want to thank again Liz Claman and Ellie Terrett for having me on Fox Business, the Claman Countdown yesterday. Moving on to uh, CGTN Global Business, I want to thank Rochelle Akufo and Stephanie Savage for having me on last night to discuss the China recovery and particularly China foreign direct investment And the reason we spend a lot of time on China, for those of you who are new that are joining us, is because their cases peaked about two months before ours uh, in our epicenters. Their epicenter was Wuhan. Our epicenter was New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. So our recovery trajectories have followed theirs, the roadmap, with a two to three month lag. So by seeing what's happening to them, we can kind of get a glimpse into the future of what's happened to us. And so far, that's proven to be very accurate. Uh FD foreign direct investment into China increased 2.6% in August. That was up from a negative 10.8% trough in March. So big recovery there. However, US and China bilateral FDI is at a nine-year low. That's attributable to uh bilateral security concerns. Obviously, COVID is a major factor. Um The trade tensions, although the phase one trade deal is going better than expected, uh, the ag purchases are uh, better than expected. They're in line with the commitments of the trade deal, and that's in part due to they had flooding that uh, obliterated some of their crop production and their ability to transport as well as they had the swine flu with their uh, pigs that culled a a million pigs from their herd. Pork is 60% of their diet, so we're getting a lot of exports uh, on the ag front. That's also a major source of RF, foreign direct investment, into China. It represents 26%, followed by entertainment and energy. Uh, the other aspect, uh, China implemented capital controls after the 2016 peak, they had invested $46 billion. A lot of it was coming into New York City real estate, I remember. And, uh, after that, it's, it's, uh, when they instituted the capital controls that affected, uh, China's direct investment into the U.S., And then finally is the bilateral uh, political pressure that I discussed with Rochelle between TikTok, WeChat, Huawei, NYSE listings, and then China coming out this weekend with the unreliable entities list. So it's just been a back and forth, but business leaders are obviously on both sides wanting the governments to find a way to work things out because... Uh, businesses have generally benefited from bilateral trade and I think it's just going to be a push-pull uh, working working together on that front. Uh, the thing that China's done in, in terms of their recovery that that I noted because it's very important of what we need to do here in the U.S. is their credit growth. They've done 187 billion dollars of new loans in the month of August, up 29% in the, from the month of July and I think basically regulators in the US really still have uh the handcuffs on the banks. You know, they're they're fighting yesterday's battle and what they need to do is focus on today's battle, which is a recovery and take really take the handcuffs off and let these banks lend. I'm speaking obviously my book in the case of Wells Fargo. They need to remove that asset cap. They've cleaned up their mess over the last uh, two years since the asset cap came on. They've cleaned house with management. They've changed their policies. You, you can't handicap the number one, one of the top lenders in the country and expect a sustainable uh, recovery. China knows that they're, they're having massive credit growth, which is why their GDP is now expected to grow 2.3% in 2020. And I think seven percent in 2021. We're we're going to grow six percent in 2021, but we could probably grow seven or eight percent if we just let left our let our banks uh, do what they do best and and get on with it. So um, that is a good lesson uh, and an opportunity for us to take advantage of. Obviously, they've done 3.6 percent deficit spending, which historically they've never gone over the red line of three percent deficit spending. That's helped them lowered rates. We've done that tax tax exemptions. Uh, have helped them. But but just to give you some idea of where we're headed and why this interview mattered to the U.S. listener is their shopping malls are now reopened. Their consumer got a positive print last month for the first time since COVID, which is huge, both for them domestically, but for the world, because you know their recovery had been driven by government stimulus. They did $500 billion in the month of May, the deficit spending, as I mentioned. But that went into Industrial, uh, railroads, um, power lines, electric charging stations, etc. And um, and the consumer wasn't quite catching up. And I said in a month ago, I think I was on with Rochelle, I said, the consumer is lagging. You know, the, you'll see the industrial, you'll see the construction first and the consumer will catch up. Well, boy, did they ever. You got that positive print. Malls are now reopened. 80 percent of their movies, movie theaters are open. Uh, Unemployment's now at 5.8%. Their residential property sales were the highest since 2017. We're getting the lagged effect. We're gonna talk about some of the data in the US is just knocking the cover off the ball. Their discretionary uh, retail car sales are up 11.8%. Mobile phone sales up 19%. This is all in the month of August and their freight volume, that's very important, was up 7.3%. Domestic air travel, we've talked about, and I, you gotta look through my glasses here, I know you guys are skeptical, but they're at 86% of pre-pandemic levels in terms of their domestic travel. We only got to 40% uh, so far, but again, we're three months behind them, that's number one. Number two, we have these 14-day quarantines, which make absolutely no sense. Uh, I flew, I guess now it's a month ago, and i had to sit at home for 14 days and report to the government that i flew which makes absolutely no sense because if masks work then which i think they, i'm of the camp that i think they're helpful uh then why would you ever have a quarantine it makes absolutely no sense just because i flew and helped the economy and uh um you know made things happen uh I'm gonna wear a mask whenever I'm out in public in 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 indoor places, etc. There's no reason to have a 14-day quarantine. Once that's lifted and people can travel, everyone wears masks on the plane and in the airports. It's totally safe. Uh, you're gonna see these numbers just crush it. Maybe they'll get the memo and implement this right away. And then by you know November, December, in time for the holidays, you could really see travel uh skyrocket maybe we get 60 70 percent i mean that's that's awfully ambitious but uh you know with masks and and removing the quarantine because most people can't come back from a vacation and then sit in their house for two months they got to get back to work they got things to do take the kids to school um so just get rid of that quarantine people wear masks in public they get it now And that's that. So um, that was it with uh, Rochelle Acufo and Stephanie Savage. Thanks again for having me on CGTN Global Business. Um, Okay, next we're moving on to... Uh, today I was in an article on Bloomberg. I want to thank Ruth Carson and Masaki Kondo asking me about the dollar. Uh, the dollar is bottomed and we're, we're going to cover that in, in the short term. We're going to cover that in the, uh, article of the week, but, um, I, uh, the quote was the dollar. Okay. The dollar is the safe haven of choice until we get new information on the vaccine elections, uh, or excuse me. Until we get new information on the vaccine, earnings, election and stimulus, said Tom Hayes, chairman of Great uh, Great Hill Capital. Until then, the dollar is likely to have bottomed in the short term. So uh, that's true. So we've been in this chop uh, in the market, you know, on uh, days that uh, you have shutdowns in the UK like you had in or more restrictions in the UK like you had on Monday um you know tech was up cyclicals down then you get vaccines, cyclicals come back and that's just going to be the push pull market's going to chop and some froth is coming out of uh has come out of tech in a meaningful way in the last few weeks which we were ahead of the curve on that uh, for those of you who've been with me for a while next uh so again uh just thank you to ruth carson and masaki kondo for including me in bloomberg and finally in reuters uh devic jane and Sagarika Jasangani, thank you so much for including me in your article earlier in the week on Wednesday. Um, And basically, I was just going through that push-pull that we just covered. When the Dow outperforms the NASDAQ, it's telling you the market believes the reopening and vaccines are on track. And that's going to help large industrial stocks, said Tom Hayes, managing member of uh, Great Hill Capital. And conversely, the other is true when you see shutdowns and restrictions, then, then uh, tech starts to get the flows or the stay-at-home stock. So it's the reopening trade versus the stay-at-home and that chronic push-pull. But the trend is toward as every day passes and we get closer to the vaccine, uh, value cyclicals uh, are going to start to uh, take the lead in terms of relative outperformance. Again, to reiterate, this does not mean zero sum, like only energy stocks will perform and tech will not, that's ridiculous, um, uh, or only banks. It's, it's just going to be what is historically the case in early parts of a new cycle when GDP growth is the fastest off a very low base, the cyclicals outperform. Why? Because managers have more companies that they can choose from in a fast economic growth environment that have earnings growth, whereas in a slow earning, a slow economic growth environment, slow GDP growth environment, they can only choose from a handful of uh, sectors and subsectors, namely tech, where, where they can find growth. Once the economy's humming, they have many sectors they can choose from and many opportunities coming off the bottom. So thanks again to Devik Jain and Sagari- Sagarika, Jaisen Thanks so much. Okay, this is the key thing. I'm going to start with the dessert and then we'll get to the meal first because um, on September, I think this article was from September uh, it's not dated. ah, September 9th, uh, this article came out and it basically was President Trump was doing a press conference and okay, at a White House news con I'm quoting now. At a White House news conference on Friday, Trump floated redeploying three hundred billion dollars in unspent funds in an account approved by Congress through the CARES Act. The president was referring to the economic stabilization fund created by Congress in March, which was intended to be loaned to distressed businesses, but much of which has not yet been dispersed, according to two people who spoke on the condition of anonymity to discuss private conversations. Trump suggested he may be able to use the money without authorization, but stressed his preference is to have Congress sign off on moving the funding to other purposes. We have $300 billion in an account that we didn't use and we're willing to use that, Trump said. I think there is a theory that I could do it without having to go back to Congress, but I think it would be appropriate to go back and I would ask Congress to approve it. So um, this was, you know, uh, about 15, 16 days ago. Uh, This is the Washington Post that's quoting that. And I didn't think much about it. You know, what he did last month with the executive order when they couldn't get a stimulus package. I can't I can't believe they couldn't get something done. Well, I can believe it. But to. At least extend the enhanced unemployment benefits for millions of people that were affected through no fault of their own, um, you know, got furloughed or laid off from their jobs because the business is shut because the world shut down for, for two or three months. I mean, the government shut down their livelihood. The government has to make them whole and they couldn't come to a deal. And the administration just said, we're gonna do whatever it takes. And he, you know, we talked about it actually, ironically, it was on a Friday and we said, I wouldn't be surprised if we see an executive order and then you know, just issue the executive order and fight it out in court and get the aid to the people who need it the most. And I think it's getting at that point now. I know there were some rumblings that Pelosi's now willing to talk, uh, as, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Speaker of the House, uh, Nancy Pelosi is willing to talk Uh, again, and she's willing to bring down her offer from, you know, three trillion to two and a half trillion. You know, I I, I think that sounds that, you know, my recollection was a couple weeks ago, she was at a trillion and the Republicans were at uh, 500 billion. So now she's willing to negotiate by taking her offer up. It sounds to me like nothing's going to get done. Now, um, sometimes when Congress is 401k plans are impacted as they were in the month of September probably being overweight tech um, they get more willing to move number one number two they may be getting pushback as we discussed last week going back to their constituencies and saying I did nothing for you other than shut your business down put you out of work and not make you whole vote for me and that goes on the Republican side and that goes on the Democratic side this that's not a partisan thing they're not getting anything done. So, I think the conditions are set up that um it's now in the administration's interest rather than wait for these you know people in Congress to not get anything done or pretend to get something done and not get anything done uh and wor- wait for the politics while millions of people they're fiddling while these people are burning um I think he had will have public support the administration will have immense public support from millions of people that are that uh have not recovered as businesses have slowly reopened to do another executive order on this basis now i'm not an attorney but i think in seeing what happened in august and by the way You know, both for the Republicans in Congress and for the uh, Democrats in Congress not getting this done. Keep in mind, um, if you want to get reelected, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat, Trump's poll numbers inflected to the day he issued the executive order. You can go to election betting odds, look at the chart, look at the day he issued the executive order, uh, order to help out those people that were left behind with enhanced unemployment benefits and he went from it looked like it looked like a guaranteed blue sweep uh that's what it looked like before he issued that executive order and it turned around on a dime uh and completely put put him back in the game um overnight so he knows I'm sure his pol- uh, pollsters are telling him, although he acts on gut probably more so than he acts on pollsters, which helped him in 2016. He knows this is a win because let's say he does it. The only ones that are going to say it's illegal are the opposing party. And the opposing party says, no, we're going to sue you to keep $300 billion from the people who need it the most in, in, in society. That would be political suicide. That would be career suicide. So if I were in that situation, whether as a Democrat or a Republican, I would I would do the executive order tomorrow. I'm not saying it's going to happen or anything like that, but I would do it. And I would let them sue to say it's illegal to be done. And worst case, it doesn't get done. But I can then at least make the case to the people that I did everything in my power to help those that were in greatest need. And the opposing party blocked me uh, from from you getting it. And then, you know, when I say, please get get me my vote, I'm not culpable for not, not delivering. Uh, whereas the other party w- or the opposing party would have to make the case why it made sense to hold up the $300 billion that was already approved and already allocated. So I wouldn't in, in in the administration's shoes, given the millions of people that need help, I would not wait around for them to negotiate $3 trillion, which we don't need, uh, potentially, uh, or $2.5 trillion, which is probably not going to get done. It's probably just to delay the clock uh, until November, December, when these, these people are, you know, the enhanced unemployment's going to be running out. And you got $300 billion, that's more than enough. You can get PPP out there. You could potentially do a second stimulus package, a stimulus check, um, which would be probably smaller or to a lower income bracket, which is great, uh, the people most affected. You could definitely enhance, do the enhanced unemployment to the end of the year with that amount of money and just do it and let them sue you. And then you explain to the American people I put out an executive order to pay you XYZ stimulus check to in, in, um, uh, continue with enhanced un- unemployment benefits. This group of people has sued me to stop you from getting the money that was already approved, $300 billion that hasn't been used. I think it's a win-win. I think it's a win for the most vulnerable people. I think it's a win for for uh, the people who have the courage to do that. So now, why, why would I be bringing this up after a, uh, um, you know, 16 days, you know, why Why is this relevant now? Well, it's relevant because they, they've been fiddling while uh, these people are burning, number one. Uh, number two, uh, um, Powell and Mnuchin were on the Hill talking about $300 billion in unused aid and talking about Congress approving it. Now, if I'm the other party, I want to take credit for helping these people out. I don't want to let the administration go over the top and get another win when he got such a huge bump in the polls by doing it in August. And and we were just sitting there twiddling our thumbs and completely got shell-shocked. I would want it. I would want my signature all over this. And I would say, yeah, we're going to approve it. We don't, you know, if we can't come to a $2.4 trillion deal, we've already approved $300 billion. Let's do this together, bipartisan. Everyone goes home and says, hey, look what we did for you you know we got it done in congress the democrats can go and get elected the republicans can go and get elected and everyone wins so uh that you know that's called career security which is you know what congress people are very interested in so um so so that's that on the flip side there's been a um it's like a legal opinion or article circulating um in the hedge fund community you can find it it's it's um dot um i'll i'll post it in tomorrow's reads actually so if if you go on hedgefundtips.com every morning i put out you know be in the know 10 key free, key reads for saturday uh, i'll have it as one of the re- I'll, I'll put it as the first read but basically here's the first paragraph Uh, Presidential spending discretion and congressional controls (coughs) on the basis of the Constitution and traditional legislative prerogatives, Congress lays claim to exclusive control over the purse. We all know that. Nevertheless, while it is up to Congress to appropriate funds, it is also true that the president and the executive branch enjoy considerable discretion as to how those funds are spent. Existing studies tell us how the president formulates the budget and how Congress acts on the budget requests he submits surprisingly we know relatively little about how the money once appropriated is actually spent a notable exception is this field in this field is a work by Lucius Wild- Wilder Ding Jr. published three decades ago the purpose of this article is to present a more contemporary account of executive spending discretion to show its impact on public policy and to point to some of the techniques and procedures used by Congress to preserve its power of the purse although the president's spending discretion may seem essentially a 20, 20th century phenomenon resulting primarily from the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921 it has been a problem since George Washington's first administration a number of early examples underscore the fact and additional historical perspective and balance to this presentation. The material is organized under seven main headings, lump sum appropriations, covert financing, transfers between classes, reprogramming, transfers in time, impoundment, and unauthorized commitments. Within those broad categories are smaller sections on such topics as contingency funds, military assistance, no-year money, accelerated procurement, and coercive deficiencies. A number of these categories overlap, resulting in certain arbitrariness in organization. So this goes on. So that's the theme. It goes on for 38 pages, showing all examples of history when the president was able to use his discretion to spend the money that was already allocated. So he he has a lot of precedent to stand on here, and maybe some lawyers will email me, constitutional lawyers, and step in. But I think even if 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 it's like forty sixty like you know sixty percent of people say no way forty percent of my advisors say you know yeah you could probably do it I would just do it and and then <laughs> and let let the opposition sue me and say yeah we want to keep three hundred billion from the hands of the most uh, most uh, at risk that lost their jobs to no fault of their own good luck with that position it's it's career suicide so uh, I would not be surprised at all I know they're going through this pretend thing that they're going to talk about doing 2.4 trillion which isn't even needed Um, what's needed is the people who have to pay their rent you know in five days they need their enhanced unemployment and they need a second stimulus check and I think Mark Cuban was out talking about two checks a week for the next two months I don't know I don't think 300 billion would cover that um, but I, I don't think we need a lot more than this $300 billion that's already allocated. I mean, you know, if they come to some agreement, $1 trillion, trillion, that's fine. Ultimately, it's going to get, you know, inflated away by purchasing power. So, like, you know, adding $3 trillion of debt, you say, wow, the debt to GDP is going to be 120% like it was in 1948. But then the economy grows notionally, you'll, you know, it'll be uh, $25 trillion on a $30 trillion notional economy. Uh, but still, we, you know, we don't need that much. We've already done 99% of what we de- need. This is the last bit for those people that just need a few more months until the vaccine's out, until businesses are reopened. And I think this could be a, a catalyst. And by the way, if I'm the opposition party now thinking, wait a second, he's going to do this. And it's going to checkmate us again. And the last time he just rocketed in the polls after doing this, we should get ahead of it and do a $750 billion deal or a $100 billion deal with our signature on it versus giving him all the credit for helping everyone out. So it's something to keep in mind now that there's, there, there's this leverage in place. Uh, both parties have to be interested in getting something done. So either we see something like this come up very, very quickly or... Um, the opposition sees that it's in their interest to get ahead of it and take credit themselves and do a billion, billion and a half uh, dollar deal. But either way, I think this is something that the market is no longer pricing in. I mean, obviously the end of today, you know, the market was up. People think maybe there's stimulus. It'll be a good thing. Great. But on balance with the performance of the market in September, the market has effectively discounted. And that's why you saw the note from when I was on Liz from Goldman, their base case is no stimulus. And this, I think, could be a a big surprise. So um, keep that in the back of your head. Moving on to my favorite subject, banks. Um, Article in Financial Times this week I posted. This is from Bank of America. Brian Moynihan said, we set our second quarter reserves with a set of scenarios and it turned out that the actual data has been better. Charge-offs keep coming down, frankly, because of credit quality, said Bank of America chief Brian Moynihan. Wells Fargo chief financial officer John Shrewsbury noted that in commercial lending, we've actually seen some better realized outcomes than we imagined. Code for we 've both over reserved due to Cecil, which we 've been pounding the table on for the last four some odd weeks, so I think you're going to see a change. We got another upgrade on Wells Fargo this week, so that's like four now in the last two and a half weeks. Sentiment has to change you know there were um, so so that's that and um the other and then there was a guy at the end of this article uh Eric. Hageman manages $35 billion. He has positions in JP Morgan city, Wells Fargo. And he said, if there are reserve releases, that's what we're talking about here. Remember, uh, all in, they've done a hundred, the top four banks have done, uh, $35 uh, $35 billion of reserves, I believe, in Q2 because of Cecil. They had to take 100% relative to $5 billion uh, same quarter last year. So they're over reserved by $20 some odd billion. Uh, that's all going to come back as income over time as we get through this. Certainly the additional $300 billion would help, or, or you a know, trillion dollar package if they could come to the table. Um, But basically what he says, if there are reserve releases, the earnings number these guys are gonna put out are gonna be huge. And that's what we're counting on. And that's been our base case for for some time. So uh, Baird was the company that put out, uh, the the shop that put out the uh, bullish fresh pick. He put a price target on it of $35 or 50% appreciation. So that was nice to see. And then uh, my favorite uh, bank reporter, uh, Carlton English over at Barron's put out a note explaining that uh, David George's upgrade over at Baird, too much opportunity at the stagecoach to to ignore, and he covered the points that we've been talking about for the last handful of weeks. Namely, they're one of the few. Well, number one, they're trading at the biggest discount to book. It's only happened two times in the last uh, in their career in their history, 1992 and 2009. In both cases, it took months to recover back to book. Book right now is running about $40 a share, maybe just a little less. And um, uh, but he also said that. They have something that the other banks don't, which is their efficiency ratio, is terrible, and that speaks to uh, Charlie Scharf talking about they can they're easily going to take out ten billion dollars of costs just from headcount and and their headcount is actually outside consultants. He said he's never seen anything in his career. They pay like consultants through the nose uh, like he's never seen in any business so so I'm sure they took a lot of that out in the most recent quarter we're going to find out in a couple of weeks at earnings so that'll be a positive things and i think these four analysts in the last couple of weeks are getting ahead of the curve they see it happening they were at the conference the barclays conference last week and um and that's that so the 10 billion dollar cost cuts George estimates that each $1 billion drop in expenses could add roughly 20 cents to earnings per share and improve the bank's efficiency ratio by 1.4 percentage points. For reference, Wells Fargo's efficiency ratio, a measure of the bank's expenses over revenue, is above 70% while peers are in the high 50s. Executing on cost savings and Exiting the Fed's asset cap, which we've been pounding the table on, once that's lifted, if the if the bank regulators and the administration actually want to see a sustainable recovery, like we saw credit growth, you must have credit growth to have a sustainable recovery. They lift that cap to one of the largest lenders in the country, and we're going to just fly. And that would be a near-term huge catalyst. Some patience is required, but we believe the risk-reward looks very compelling for contrarian investors. That's my middle name, uh, Tom Contrarian Investor Hayes. And... Um, And that was that. So great note by Carlton, recapping that. And uh, okay, the the other upgrade was last week, which we covered from Stephen Chewbac over at Wolf Research. And his price target was 34 percent. So you got two uh, bold calls coming in. Dick Beauvais had one before that, and there was one other. Now, uh, the other thing I want to cover. So the article of the week was called the Cobra Kai Sweep the Leg Stock Market and Sentiment Results. And it was called Cobra Kai. It's a remake on Netflix of the original movie from 1984 called The Karate Kid that starred Ralph Macchio uh, and um, uh, William Zopka. Ralph Macchio played Daniel Russo and... Uh, Johnny Lawrence played his nemesis, I'm sorry, uh, William Zopka played his nemesis, Johnny Lawrence. And in the original movie, there was a scene where Johnny's evil sensei instructs him to sweep the leg and show no mercy. And if you play the short video, it's only 30 seconds, you'll see that, uh, you know, uh, Johnny just takes out. Ralph Macchio, uh, Danny Larusso, like in one fell swoop, just completely knocks the stuffing out of them, and that's exactly what happened to Wells Fargo this week. Um, it was a sweep the leg move, and uh, I'm I'm looking at this chart here that I put out on Wednesday night. The article goes out on Thursday morning. We had a similar sweep the leg, is basically when when they take out all the stops. In other words, you know the technical traders that rely exclusively on technicals. Everyone knows what they're looking at. All the algos know what they're looking at. All the all their competitors know what they're looking at. So the way that you inflict pain is you take it past their pain point, and that's basically what we saw in uh, midweek this week. So we saw that in May. Uh, support after the crash was uh, about 24 and change, 24.15. And they swept the leg mid mid May down to twenty two dollars. You know, uh, eight seven eight percent below support. No one had you know all. They were all. They I'm sure they all had their stops right below twenty four. It goes two dollars below. Even for the optimists, they were just crushed. And guess what happened in the next twenty nine days after they quote swept the leg, just like Johnny did to Daniel LaRusso, uh, in the Karate Kid. Uh, they took the stock up 51% over the next 29 days. So it went from $22 to $33 in the next 29 days. And then you had uh, more concerns about COVID and then it it rolled back over. And it's basically been in this support point here around 24 where all the purchasing volume has been. For the last seven months, this is volume by price on the left-hand side. And they swept it below that resistance. They swept the leg and um, what was interesting is I got this tweet And this, you know I, I took the person's handle off and name Because, you know I'm flattered that they even follow my work And it's not about criticism It's to embody the sentiment Was so palpable The bearish, negative sentiment You, you saw it if you watch TV From the talking heads, etc Like, no one wants to touch Wells Fargo With a 10-foot pole And so... Uh I put out a tweet that day because I saw, I think it was a block of like 6,000 contracts of December Wells call options came in. That's institutional size usually. And um, this person replied to that. I think Wells Fargo is a broken record as at now. One scandal after another. New CEO opening another can of worms. Irrespective of the valuations, executive behavior will be the major drag as observed. And you know, I respect that you know, and it's gotta be tough. You know, this is, you know, when your leg gets sweeped and you get knocked on your butt, like you saw Daniel LaRusso in Karate Kid. And now in the remake and the remake, by the way, on uh, Netflix is called Cobra Kai. It's a little cheesy. I like it. You know, I like to unwind for a half hour at the end of each day. Uh, I think it's worthwhile. You're going to watch it. You're going to be like, wow, this guy's strange, but nonetheless, um, I like it. So always like the underdog story. So, um, Anyway, so I replied, that's what makes a market. And that is what makes a market. So we got swept out. That was like max pain, let's hope. Um, But uh, here's what's happened since. So that leg got swept in May. You went up 51% over the next 29 days. The leg got swept here on Wednesday. And it's making that same pattern, this spike up, pull back, and then hopefully a rocket ship off. Spike up, pull back, and we'll see if we get follow through but um, you would, no one would anticipate everyone, you know, all the guys were out with their little shiny lines saying, oh, this is a breakdown, you know, and everything else. And no, this is, a, this is we'll, we'll see what it is. No one can be 100% sure. All I know is you have to know what you own. And I would buy this all day long. If, if I ever get another opportunity in my lifetime to buy it at a 40% discount to book, I'll do it again in 20 years when we have the next crisis. Um, but this is kind of one of those things where the margin of safety makes perfect sense. Now, you could say, well, you don't know what you don't know, all the real estate exposure, all the energy exposure. No, I do know what I know. I know that they took 100% of expected reserves due to Cecil. And I know what their worst case scenario is and what they've just told me a week ago three months later after they have more information is it's much better than they anticipated. So that's what I know. And it's trading at a 40% discount to liquidation value. So that's a a pretty good thing. Um, So so that was good news and and let's see if we get follow through. Um, But that's that. For the accounts that didn't have full positions we use that as an opportunity. We'll see if we get... um, uh, follow through but basically the stock's done nothing for seven months so um, if you thought you know you were cute buying it down a couple bucks in the scheme of things it's not going to matter uh, the key is going to be does the thesis play out and if the thesis plays out and we break through all of this resistance here we've got you know blue skies up until the 40 44 you know up until book a premium a book when it gets there we don't know but will it get there i think unequivocally we just we just don't know when i think it's going to be sooner than most people anticipated but that's my opinion that's what you've tuned in for do your own do your own uh research on that so um the other point i made was nothing changed from last week uh this was wednesday night when it was down 9.15% for the week It still hadn't taken out this long-term support that goes back 12 years. This is where most of the uh, stock was purchased. This is the area that I felt institutions were defending. And uh, as such, again, there's still there's no overhead resistance until you get to the low 40s. So if we do get a catalyst, whether it's the asset cap coming off, earnings, uh, just a change in sentiment, you know, money continues to be a little bit uh, leaking out of tech. Where is it going to go? Uh, If you get any announcement with a vaccine, like uh, the Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey this month, Manager said more than inflation, the number one thing that would cause long rates to go up, yields to blow out, would be the announcement of a credible vaccine. You now got four in phase three. We got more good announcements uh, this week on the vaccine front. You get that announcement, you're going to see the 10 year yield probably go over over a, a point. It's at 65 basis points right now. I think you could see it within You know two months of an announcement being at 125 and then you got you know the spread between effectively zero and 125 would be the widest nim that they've seen in in years and that would come off of one announcement even before you have inflation which comes down the road so um so this was defended the adx crossover which you know i i I never even use it but i just thought it was interesting anytime i find something that's 15 out of 16 of the last times it's crossed uh, you get these these rallies consistently. I thought that was helpful, and nothing 's changed on that front and now it 's uh much better when this was taken. it was down to twenty two dollars and eighty three cents I think it closed at i don 't know twenty three sixty so it was up a buck and a half from there, so uh, moving in the right direction so um, so that 's that and then i you know the theme of the article has been karate Kid and now the Cobra Kai, which is twenty years later when they 're adults. But uh, Mr. Miyagi used to tell Daniel, you know, Daniel would get uh, anxious. He'd say, I'm waxing your car. I'm painting your fence. I'm painting your house. You know, you're not teaching me karate. You're just using me. And he goes, patience, daniel son." And then he would say, you know, wax on, wax off. And he'd say, look, you have learned karate. And uh, obviously from all the hard work, Daniel didn't know what it was leading up to. And what it was leading up to was a huge victory, Even though he got his leg sweeped in the end, he wound up with the crane kick and completely destroyed Johnny, his nemesis, by being patient, by putting in the time, putting in the patience, and uh, ultimately winning in a major way. And we're... Um, hopeful that that's, that's the, the outcome with this as well. So patience, Daniel, son, remind, we remind ourselves that, uh, with, with this stock, which is one position in a very large portfolio, but, but a large size position. And, and, uh, um, we're, we're excited for it. So let's see next, um, we t- uh We pointed out that the cyclicals are beginning their move. We saw in last week's Bank of America Global Fund Manager survey. Obviously the managers finally got the memo um, that uh, tech was most overvalued. It was the highest percentage of managers that managed six hundred billion saying that they felt tech was in a bubble. They started moving out of tech and healthcare growth areas into value small caps and industrials. And that's evidence even till today, which is two weeks later, (coughs) um, that uh, we'll go back to Apple, Wells Fargo in a second. Uh, Industrials, financials, materials, and transports, All cyclicals have outperformed tech in the first 25 days of this month. So that's a very positive thing. Even the most loved stock in the S&P 500, which we talked about on September 1st before it crashed, uh, relative to the most hated stock in the S&P 500, Wells Fargo, uh, that inflection, which you can go back to our August 27th and our September 1st articles, which talked about how Apple, when Apple was, I guess, Gosh, what was it at the time? $465? Anyway, it was literally to the day, which is more lucky than good. Uh, I was on with Brad Smith on Cheddar and Greta Wall on uh, One American News Network saying that Apple is trading at 39 times current year earnings. The highest multiple it's traded at in the last 15 years was 26 times current year earnings. It was trading at 33 times forward. And I was saying it's time to lighten up on tech and to get into cyclicals. And I also talked about Wells Fargo trading at a discount to book. It's only happened two times. They can take $10 billion of costs out, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Cecil. I went into a a, a very long discussion on Cecil and how that's different and how it underreported the bank's earnings powers relative to the same period last year. Uh, it was underreported by about $23 billion if you did apples to apples due to a paper accounting change, not in a $23 billion erosion in the underlying business. It was just the way that they had to account for expectations. So, um, So, you know, that that spooked people because they didn't know how to interpret it. But they'll get used to it now and they'll start to model it to either model the old numbers to the new standard or model the new numbers to the old standard so they can compare apples to apples versus thinking that the world is ending. Um, So we got the huge um, outperformance of Wells Fargo relative to Apple this month, largely from Apple collapsing uh, 25% peak to trough. Intraday, um, then Wells Fargo appreciating. So Wells Fargo took a break in the last few days, but the trend is still up. It broke the downtrend line on relative performance. Usually, sometimes they'll go back to retest. It looks like maybe maybe not that extreme as it retested here already. And maybe we could continue this new tr- up upward trend. That's a good news. Um, so here is here are the two articles I referenced: the Run DMC, it's tricky stock market, and the Stevie Wonder faith stock market and you can click there and that's where i go into the fundamental story both on wells fargo and um and apple as well so moving along um this is also consistent with 2020 earnings estimates so it's not just you know uh, hope that you're going to get a rotation the numbers are proving that out Energy, industrials, consumer discretionary, financials, and material will all outperform the earnings growth of the S&P in 2021. According to consensus estimates, the S&P is going to grow at 26%. uh, Industrials, 87%. Financials, 31%. Materials, 29%. Discretionary, 76%. Whereas tech is going to grow at only 13% or half of the pace of the S&P 500. So a lot of their earnings power was pulled forward due to covid and the setups and the pull forward of all the Macs and, and things people had to buy f- to work from home and school from home, uh, etc. So um, so that's good when the fundamentals back up uh, the thesis and everything else, it, it's good to have those things in sync. Where to find income these days? This is a key study that I want to go through with you because a lot of you are saying, where am I going to get income? I need income. This is a really unique opportunity in history Um, and a hat tip to Dividend Growth Investor on Twitter who published the historic information, but I want to tell you the story because a a reporter asked me about finding income and what I want to say about this is uh, the opportunity here is selection. For select income would be among mid to large cap, high quality dividend growers that have consistently increased their dividend over time. It is not only the yield you receive at the time of purchase that matters, but the pace and consistency at which they increase their dividend over time. So a great example is Warren Buffett from the late 80s to early 90s was buying up Coca-Cola. And at that point, split adjusted, it was trading at $3.25 a share. So... Um the yield was eight eight and a half cents a share, which was basically a two point six percent yield at the time. What the average investor would do in that situation is they'd say two point six percent yield you know it's already trading at eighteen times earnings. Why would I buy it? The stock can fall much more than two point six percent, which is short termism and the wrong mindset for this particular strategy because what would have happened is um so that Measly 2.6% yield on Coca-Cola. They grew the dividend every single year since. Okay, so they're like, they're what they call a dividend aristocrat. And now that one share that was the basis split adjusted was $3.25. The dividend is $1.64. So you get a, he get a 50.4% yield on the initial basis of the stock and he's paid no capital gains because he holds the stock so it was a 1.3 billion dollar investment he gets about 650 million dollars a year of income oh and by the way the stock has gone up 15x over the same period for a capital appreciation of almost 20 billion on top, uh, uh, on top of the 650 million, he gets in income. Now you say, well, yeah, I if I had bought Coca-Cola in 1988, I'd be that rich too. No, because right now there are a tremendous number of stocks that are hugely off their. Recent highs due to COVID. This is an opportunity, which nineteen eighty-eight, if you remember, was a thirty some odd percent quick correction in a secular bull market, which is what we just had a thirty-five percent correction in a or thirty-three and change percent correction in a secular bull market. And uh the opportunities are there, and some of you you know, we covered four on Liz's show. Um, you know, Con Ed, Walgreens, Beckon Dickinson, and Campbell's. But, you know, those. Are, it, it doesn't have to be those. It, it, there, there are a couple dozen that are off their highs, that have reasonable yields, and have histories of growing their dividend, not for five years or 10 years or 15 years. Some of them have been growing the dividend every single year for 40 years. So you don't worry about the, what the stock does in the short term. You worry about, you know, how fa fast a pace do they compound that dividend and that income because 15, 10 years, 15 years from now, you could be getting a 20, 30 plus percent yield on your current day basis. Oh, and by the way, the stock will have probably appreciated three, four, five times in the interim, and that would just be whipped cream. The key is you're getting ongoing income that you can put into other businesses and stocks over that time. So right now, a bunch of them trading off the uh, off their highs with reasonable yields and a history of growing the dividend over time, uh, 3M, Chubb, Tootsie Roll, Black Hills, which is a utility, Cisco, uh, that's the food service, Becton Dickinson, VF Corp, ADP, Coca-Cola, Con Edison, Walgreens Boots Alliance, ExxonMobil, Affleck, uh, uh, AT&T, International Fragrances, Tiffany's, Bristol-Myers, Pfizer, Hershey, uh, HEI, Heiko, uh, WR Berkeley, that's an insurer, uh, Travelers, uh, General Dynamics, and Medtronic. So um that's just a basket to do your own homework see how they've compounded the the um the dividend over time see what their cash flow is etc but that's a good starting point a handful of those even if you're wrong on one of them uh over time they're going to grow the income so they're again not recommendations do your own homework but it just goes to show you What happens over time that, you know, people say 2.6% yield, that's not the story. The story is, how is the yield going to compound? And we're at this historic time, where you still have an opportunity to get these high quality franchises at big, big discounts. Oh, and by the way, Wells Fargo will reinstate the dividend at some point in the future. So that's the additional kicker on top of the the appreciation that we're looking for. We're mostly focused on appreciation, but many people have been asking, where do I get income with rates so low? That's exactly where you get it. And you just tuck them away. And every year you get a pay raise. And that's a good thing. Um, OK, what about insurance? Another reporter asked me this week, you know, what are you going to do to hedge against a potential crash in Q4? You know, opinion follows trend um that's what i learned at the first hedge fund i worked at by the way if you're listening to the podcast and we get cut off uh just go to hedgefundtips.com you can play the video cast you fast forward to the 60 minute mark so you don't have to listen to anything twice unless you want to um and then you'll pick up the last five or ten minutes that you missed because we do have some important stuff to cover (coughs) so The quote that I gave her is the time to buy insurance is before the house goes on fire. (laughs) So we've had this pretty healthy correction in the month of September. Time to buy insurance was, you know, three weeks ago when I was talking about Apple being overvalued and a rotation out of tech. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, there was an article that just came out. Wall Street's biggest five stocks by value are on track for their worst month ever. So that's Facebook, Amazon, Apple. Netflix and Google, this is Mark decambri over at um Market Watch. so you can read that and uh you know that's uh for those of you who have been with me you know you you were you were ahead of the curve on that next um so she said, well then what would you do if you're not worried about a big correction in q four I uh, I would s I said uh, well the seasonality for weakness is right now. This is the most seasonally weak period of the year, September, and particularly the week between Rosh Zana and Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Monday night uh or Monday. Um and um and then they say so they say sell Rushana by Yom Kippur. We'll we'll see if that holds. Maybe the market was front running that today. Uh I could see I could see potentially tech having a little bit more work to do to the downside, but let, let's let see how it goes. I mean, there's there's been enough damage. I'm not focused on that anyway. I'm focused on those names that are going to benefit from the vaccine announcement, the reopening trade names. I'm not worried about the tech names, but um, uh, so that's that. So what I would be doing is oh okay if you have some cash now's a great time to be selectively picking up laggard stocks financials industrials materials small pockets of energy that will outperform in the early part of a new cycle m2 money supplies up 20 percent since march we've filled a one trillion dollar problem gdp contraction it's actually smaller than that now it's like 750 billion dollar contraction with almost 10 trillion dollars of authorized stimulus aid and liquidity we didn't use the majority of that which is why we've got the 300 400 billion dollars on the sidelines ready for an executive order um and and then i went into you know tech outperforms when gdp growth is slow cyclicals outperform when gdp is fast why because managers have a greater supply of companies with fast earnings growth to choose from before they had they had to bid up a small supply of stocks where they could find earnings growth that's changing rapidly we're seeing it in in the industrial numbers we're seeing it in global economic data across the board the economic surprise index is still at record highs and you saw it starting with china and now it's in the u.s all the numbers the pmis are just supporting cyclical cyclical cyclicals uh so the vacuum we're in an information vacuum that's why you saw the choppiness the market's thirsting for information on the vaccine earnings, the election, and um, stimulus. Now, Ned Davis put out a a chart that showed um, for the incumbent to win, for a Republican incumbent to win, this correction is normal, but you would see a reversal starting at the end of September into the election. So that's his that's historic precedent the data is from 1900 to 2016 nothing's foolproof but this is the compilation of all of those second term president's uh, election periods and if you see this so this will basically tell you what the likelihood is of the election so if i'm in the administration and i see this dropping here we're right here at this third week of end of the third week of september this is where it would have to inflect historically for it to point to the incumbent winning the party.